KZSU FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and this year a visiting a research collaborator at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Today, I'm very excited to have on Sam Brylowski of the Association for Recorded Sound Collections um, by past and currently the uh, editor, co-editor editor of the Association for Recorded Sound Collection Guide to Audio Preservation. Um, I have known Sam now, and this is kind of shocking to me as I think about it, but uh, I got to know Sam and his in- incredible work um, in sound preservation uh, about at this point, and it's, it really is amazing to me, 10 years ago, um, where uh, Sam and I were connected through efforts that Larry Lessig was leading at Stanford at the time to deal with the very thorny question of what fair use rights and copyright law look like with regard to sound recordings generally. And hearsay culture listeners know uh, that copyright is a focus, so is preservation as well. Uh, and the fair use overlap is that the fair use defense to a claim of copyright infringement, which allows things like criticism, also deals with a very serious question involving the ability of archivists to make copies of of materials for purposes of preservation, not to mention the general fair use concerns that exist with regard to transforming or changing works. Um, At the time, uh, the Center for Internet Society was focusing on fair use rights for sound recordings made prior to 1972 because of the vagaries of federal copyright law. Prior to 1972, sound recordings are covered by state law. And so there was a very open question, which has not been entirely resolved, about what fair use looks like for pre-1972 sound recordings. Enter Sam and the Association for Recorded Sound Collections, which is truly one of my favorite organizations because the organization is made up of individuals who, as the title suggests, collect recorded sound. But this is not the recorded sound that we tend to focus on when we think about these issues. In other words, this isn't the recorded sound of all of Lady Gaga's albums. Rather, this is the recorded sound, for example, of the early 20th century singer Edward Meeker, who recorded via cylinders, or its 1940s metal recordings made In other words, these are sound recordings that A, may not have a current market, and B, are truly the recorded sound heritage of our country. The fact that fair use and copyright law was in any way an impediment to the preservation of these sounds, as Sam knows, because we chatted about it at the time, I even gave talks to ARSC later on, just maddens me to no end that archivists have to deal with these issues. Nonetheless, that was the overlap. So here we are now recording March second 2016 and sam and i are chatting about this wonderful guide to audio preservation that arsk put out sam is a co-editor along with maya lerman robin pike and kathleen smith who are not joining us today and we're going to focus on what sounds superficially like a rather narrow question of how you preserve recorded sound given different medium uh, and media that are used, given uh, resource limitations, given all the challenges of sound quality. But because of Sam's extensive background in these areas, which I'm going to talk about in a moment, we're going to move far beyond those topics, which are certainly important in their own right, uh, but also go further than that. 
the collection of authors within the book include people that would be familiar to uh, hearsay culture listeners, uh, primarily Peter Jazzy from American University, who has been a very active, not only advocate, but scholar on fair use in particular, and has put out some really uh, useful, popular writing on fair use. And so he wrote a chapter here, but also Sam has collected archivists and others who have written about the various issues that exist. So who is Sam? Sam is the co-director of the American Discography Project at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and the editor of US, UCSB's Discography of American Historical Recordings. Uh, hearsay culture listeners may remember from a few years ago that I had Dave Soybert on the show talking about the uh, Cylinder Preservation Project that UCSB does, which is fascinating. Um, he is the former head of the Library of Congress's Recorded Sound section. Uh, he is also the co-author of both the Library of Congress's National Recording Preservation Board study on audio preservation, which itself um, has been extremely useful for people focusing in this area. Um, and uh, he served as chair of the National Recording Sound Preservation Board from 2013 to 2015. Uh, so Sam is, although he is modest about it, one of the nation's leading people in this area, and I'm very excited to have him on the show today. He is joining us via Skype uh, from Washington, D.C. Sam, thank you for joining me today on Hearsay Culture. Thanks. My pleasure. Sam, I, I just did this uh, somewhat longer introduction than I normally do. Uh, but again, may, maybe a little bit more about your background and uh, what you are focusing on in preservation would be useful for my listeners. Well, I um, um, a large part of my background are different jobs in recorded sound at the Library of Congress. Uh, I was fortunate enough at the age of 19, after, after freshman year of college, to be hired for a summer job at the library as what they called a studio engineer. Um, I, out of respect for engineers, there was nothing uh, very scientific about it. But basically, I transferred at-risk recordings at that time to quarter-inch magnetic tape. That was the preservation medium of 1971. And, um, and the library couldn't get rid of me. I stayed there. I went there after I graduated college and had a number of jobs there. I was a um, reference librarian for many, many years. And, and when I left, I was head of the section and wouldn't really, after 30 years at the library, really uh, loved it, but um, really appreciated the opportunity to work for the University of California, Santa Barbara on what we hope will become a national discography for the United States. Sam, tell us a little bit, and I want to actually get into that topic as well. Tell us a bit more about ARSC, um, the Association of Recorded Sound Collections. ARSC is, uh, as you said, the Association for Recorded Sound Collections. And, and it is unique, not just because of the scope of the sound recordings collected and, and curated by members of ARSC, but also because, unlike uh, most other professional societies, ARSC is made up of both private collectors and professional archivists and librarians. So you, and we learn from each other. Um, my experience is that private collectors tend to know more about recordings, the content of recordings than any of us so-called professionals. There, there are no college courses in the history of sound recording, or at least very few, unlike the, the, the many courses available for the history of uh, radio or television or uh, motion pictures. And, um, Anyway, there's a rich history, you know, a lot of it yet to be written that's uh, known by collectors. So uh, the uh, ARSC has a journal that comes out twice a year. It has a conference annually. And in fact, our conference in May 
will be held in Bloomington, Indiana, Mm -hmm. and it's the 50th anniversary of ours, which we celebrated there. Wow, wow, it's amazing, and you know, and and I and we're going to get into some of these preservation issues broadly, but I would I do want to be clear about this. At its core, when we're when you are focusing, I should say, on audio preservation. What is the core concern or reason why this is a topic that required and was useful for what is, again, as listeners can't see it, right, is a lengthy and detailed study of these issues? What, what makes that issue from, it, from your perspective uh, you know, as an archivist, what is that about? Well, um, I mean, I think we're all aware that there's sound recordings everywhere. I don't know that we're aware of of you know the extent to which they're they're hidden or all the different places they are and 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 you know when you think about it it's it's obvious but sound recordings of course are more than the CDs or the the LPs we own the 78s but they're also radio broadcasts that may have been recorded but aren't um you know in an institution or even in the hands of a collector who, who might be taking care of them. There are things, um, one of the great challenges, and this is, um, you know, I guess I'll call it, you know, a paradox, and that uh, contemporary sound recordings may be at greater risk than uh, historic ones, or, or rather historical ones, ones from even 100 years ago, and that so much is streamed now um, and isn't recorded on a medium, and that the you know, consumers use other than their hard drives. So how can we assure that there'll be a systematic means to preserve these recordings? And there are both technical challenges to that and also legal challenges to preserving contemporary recordings. And I think for, for listeners that don't focus in this area, and I, I certainly, from the work that I did years ago and following it, there are some pretty tragic stories of the degradation of these unique recordings and i and i hate to ask a downer question but can you give a couple of examples that might come to mind of where sound recordings themselves in terms of preservation are threatened currently well they're they're um you know i think they're threatened as i said it's contemporary recordings things that are available by stream only mm-hmm. that that there's no systematic uh pro program to preserve the best of them or the most popular of them or really any of them there are some grassroots efforts which are fantastic but you know there's there's a ways to go to assure that they're going to be available decades from now also there's a problem that that you know we, we you and i have never discussed which is um end user license agreements mm-hmm. EULAs, which um there, there are a number of recordings now um some of the most one of the most famous ones, I think it's, it's Los Angeles Philharmonic, had a Grammy-winning recording several years ago uh, that's distributed only by download. And your end-user license agreement, uh, you have to state, you have to assure them that, that you are not an institution, that this recording will not be placed on a server or ever duplicated or distributed. And in effect, not only that license agreement, but those of iTunes and Amazon and, and other distributors prohibit, uh, you know, institutional purchase of the recording. They're for, they're for individuals. And um, individuals have done a fantastic job of preservation, but it, it's, it's not coordinated. So we need major universities and libraries to preserve these recordings to assure that they're going to be available for decades. These agreements prohibit that. 
And so EULAs um, are a topic that we've talked about on the show uh, to some degree with regard to restrictive licensing terms and also the enforcement of them, uh, which we can talk about too. Um, you, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, and we're chatting with Sam Brylowski on KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Uh, Sam, you, your your book, The uh, Guide to Audio Preservation, uh, just again for listeners that aren't that aren't holding the book, of course, uh, tell us a bit more about that book and who the audience is for your book well well sure um the uh the arts guide audio preservation is um is an overview of audio preservation um who's really the target audience is um individuals and institutions without specific expertise in audio preservation so it might be a library that has a great conservation department and uh you know professional Librarians, but one which doesn't have a, an audio engineer on hand, or an audio, or someone who's uh, has experience in audio conservation issues. Um, that's uh, you know sort of a guide of where to start. Preservation has um, gotten much more complex in the last 15 years, and the bar sort of high can be so formidable that people just give up. And this was sort of intended to be something that, that explains things in relatively simple terms. They have to be simple for me to understand them. I'm, I'm not an engineer. And, um, and, 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 you know, gives people some practical approaches to taking care of collections. Sam, let, let's, uh, to offer context here before we get into these uh, more technical and, but, and important questions involving uh, technological developments in this area, um, you know, I think it would be helpful to kind of give a broad overview of the state of audio preservation today. You've mentioned, you know, what is a certainly a current problem of streaming and the failure to archive or even do anything other than allow uh, these recordings uh, or live uh performances to disappear which which to me harkens back to the earlier days of radio and perhaps i'll contextualize this question with an example that i came across recently when i came across it i thought of this interview um so you know personally as a jazz fan uh i wind up uh listening uh when i can to not just to jazz generally but to vinyl um and i you know enjoy the sound of vinyl and i have a decent um setup uh, but nothing Certainly nothing that an audio engineer would be thrilled about, but it's good enough. Anyway, um, so I've listened to uh, recently a lot of the recordings of Clifford Brown, uh, Cl- which who I'm sure who I know you know, uh, but for listeners, Clifford Brown uh, was a trumpeter um, in the 40s and 50s uh, who was uh, compared to Miles Davis. In fact, some thought he would surpass Miles Davis, who was killed tragically in a car accident uh, in the late 50s when he was 26. Um, and he he did several uh, recordings with Max Roach, but the bottom line is we don't have a lot of what he recorded. And, and, and I think this is right. I haven't researched it extensively, but I haven't found evidence to the contrary. There is literally only one video recording of him playing the trumpet that is known. And the amazing part of this, which is why I thought of you, and I kind of want to get your reaction to this broadly as an issue in preservation, um, is that the one recording that we have is a kinescope recording from a Soupy Sales, the comedian Soupy Sales variety show that he did in Michigan. 
Okay, and again, I am, and and Sam, I am not an expert at all in these areas. Um, I am not; I'm barely a dabbler. Um, but my understanding of kinescope technology is that it was technology that was that was literally attached to uh, television cameras at the time to record snippets of and 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 if I'm wrong about this Sam correct me to record snippets of whatever was being seen through the camera and often was not used for public purposes but in the case of Soupy Sales apparently he used it to assess his show so it turned out in this case from what I understand and what I've read and there's been some research on this bigger recording that Soupy just happened to record Clifford Brown, who was on the show because he was doing a performance at a local jazz club. So we have a four or five minute clip, which you can find on YouTube, of Clifford Brown playing some songs, and then and it's, it's really poignant, um, given given the fact that he he was killed in this car accident uh, several months later, talking about his new son. Here's my point, right? How does it turn out that we have access to this kinescope? Well, apparently, a researcher about 20 years ago reached out to Soupy Sales and said, "Do you have?" You know, we understand that you had jazz musicians on. Do you have any recordings? He went to the proverbial garage and found this recording, and it is literally the only video recording we have of Clifford Brown, who, as I said in the beginning, was was considered to be someone who could have been his generation's Miles Davis. Okay, from a preservation standpoint, from a library, even from, and I understand you, you're not speaking for the Library of Congress, of course, but from the perspective of someone who has extensive experience in the Library of Congress, what's your reaction to that story? Assuming the facts to be true, which I think are generally right, although if you want to correct me on kinescope or other aspects of it, please do. Well, my, my initial reaction is thank you, Soupy Sales. Yeah. Um, how could it be anything but... Um, I'm not surprised in that um, some some of our great treasures are somewhat accidental, or at least they weren't um, intended to be preservation. They weren't intended for other use, and that that's a very important point we ought to talk about at some point. Um, Please, what I call crudely the aftermarket. Um, but but yeah, technology has um, made recording so easy now in, in so many ways that um you know we we of course we take it for granted and we forget but there were times i mean well videotape the way that uh until recently most television was recorded um really wasn't uh color you know wasn't developed until the late 1950s or let's put into wide use um kinescopes as you said are literally um, shooting a video screen and a camera has a video screen in it because that's how that's how the cameraman sees uh, what's being shot in television by, I think it's 16-millimeter film. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have 16-millimeter film in front of a you know 525-line uh, television screen, so it, by its very nature, somewhat primitive, and then you have to develop that film and preserve the film. So uh, it was very expensive to preserve both audio and video until relatively recently, um, almost no radio exists prior to 1935 when, when technicians developed lacquer instantaneous discs. Now, you know, I say almost no. There, I'm sure there are hundreds of aluminum discs and other, uh, some other formats where radio sound is preserved, but considering the fact that 
you know, hundreds of thousands of hours locally and nationally were aired, it's not very much. So then after 1935, we have lacquer discs, and it isn't until the late 1940s that recording tape becomes common. So here's just the case where the technology is um, making preservation challenging, and because it's expensive and, and you have to have, uh, you know, sometimes train people to do it. Again, we take that for granted because we can all just sort of lift our little Zoom recorders or our, our telephones to, to preserve things, so to speak, to record them. But at the same time, there wasn't a need to... There, there was, people didn't feel a, a reason to record things, to preserve them. So, um, you know, that that's the point about the aftermarket. This Please. is where you get into... Uh, why networks did or didn't record what what they aired, including the television state, including Soupy Sales show. Um, yeah, and please, you know, this is a good time. So tell tell us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I've encountered that so often over the years that some of the most important artifacts that we have of of broadcasting are ones made by the artists themselves. They would contract with a studio that recorded things off the air. It may be in Soupy Sales' case, it could have been off the air or it could have been in the studio, but it was Soupy Sales who wanted to assess his performances. The networks themselves, you know, I'm talking about radio networks and television networks, um, it wasn't necessarily in their interest to record things. Sometimes attorneys might have had them to do it for, for the news broadcast, just in case there was some question or, or problem challenge. But there was no aftermarket like we have today. Today, anything that's uh, released, the, the, you know, when we go to artists for rights, you know, we say, you know, you, you are giving this performance for this venue, this program, this show, and any on, on this format and any other that might be invented in the future. That wasn't thought of uh, 50 or 100 years or, you know, 75 years ago. There was only live radio for the most part, except for, you know, playing DJ shows and some shows that were indicated on discs. So, and, and radio producers couldn't imagine that after the show aired, there'd be any other use for it. Mm -hmm. Um you know, they didn't even have summer repeats like, like we have on television. You, you bring in new programs on the networks during the summer. And, and this was true. And this was true in motion pictures, too. The Library of Congress um, was, was the studios donated tens of thousands of reels of nitrate motion picture film to the Library of Congress because the library offered to store it for free and preserve it. And video, home video distribution on Betamax or VHS or whatever, much less streaming, wasn't in anyone's mind. So they really thought that, ex with the exceptions of some films like, you know, Gone with the Wind and Disney films, these films would never be seen again by anyone. So let's just give them away. <laughs> and of course, all that's changed now. But what makes it important is, is that when you want to make use of these historic recordings, historical recordings, um, Legally, you often have to go back to the artists or find the artists in the trade unions to get permission because there was nothing signed at the time. Now, we're way off topic, but to go back to Soupy Sales, um, you know, this is a case where the artist saved his or her own work on the best medium of the time, not considered best by anyone since, but we're all very, very grateful for kinescopes. There's fantastic stuff preserved on them. 
So yeah, and, and yes, and I appreciate this, Sammy. You mentioned going off topic, although I think that's where we're headed. Uh, we're, we're chatting with Sam Barlowski of the Association for Recorded Sound Collections, co-author of the uh, publication uh, that's that's co-published uh, by the uh, Council on Library and Information Resources and the National Recording Preservation Board of Library Congress, the ARSC Guide to Audio Preservation. Um, so, so give our listeners, if you would, Sam, kind of, and I alluded to this earlier. You know, in, in terms of what we, in terms of the breadth of our sound collections, I'll just focus on the United States. You know, what kinds of materials do we have? But perhaps more specifically, and perhaps more difficult, where are our gaps? I mean, other than, of course, you know, the 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 you know non-existence of a medium through capture sound. Where do we have gaps in our, uh, you know, more recent, if you will, uh, recorded history? Well, um, you know, an awful lot is recorded today. It's, I mean, it's, I, it's hard to think of, you know, big gaps because if they don't exist, I may not be aware of them. Yeah, right, right. But, um, you know, the gaps today are whether things are being systematically organized and made accessible. If you're interested in the history of, say, a, a punk group from the 70s. There may have been people who tape recorded backstage um, and these tapes are around. A, a lot. The, the gap is really in the coordination and preservation of those tapes. Um, I mean, there, there are many other gaps like that. There's certainly um, radio is a particular passion of mine. Local radio is an enormous gap. We, there just isn't, um, you know, with the exception of home tapers, um, you know, a lot of local radio has been totally lost. Um, there, there was a, uh, the National Recording Preservation Board, which you mentioned earlier, uh, established a radio preservation task force a few years ago. And by coincidence, they had their first meeting, a, a big conference of over 200 people, um, last weekend, February 27th or so. And it was fantastic to see so many people, both archivists and librarians, but and scholars, more scholars, get together for the first time to talk about these challenges. And, um, you know, one thing I learned was when radio broadcasting, that is to say FCC regulations uh, were of, um, radio was deregulated in the mid-1990s. Most of your listeners may be aware of this. You had giant companies come in and grab radio stations, buy all these small independent stations from around the country. There used to be limits on how many stations one owner could have, and those were uh, thrown out in the mid-90s. And um, so when the stations changed formats, you know, apparently the archives just got tossed away. They, they are, you know, there was no reason for someone who came in and, and was, you know, changing an old alternative rock station to be an all-news station or all-talk, all-call-in shows, and um, things were tossed. Now, we believe that a lot of these things were taken home by engineers or, you know, literally rescued from the dumpsters by fans or engineers uh, or people who worked at the station really cared about the format of the station, but we don't know. And there, and, and actually, this is a good time to do this. Um, you're listening to KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Uh, for those of you that listen to KZSU regularly, you know that it is a nonprofit, non commercial radio station at Stanford University. 
that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. You have a couple of ways to listen uh, to KZSU and, and to make a donation. You go to our webpage um, at kzsu.stanford.edu, or you can email our underwriting department. Uh, either way, I hope that you continue to listen to the station as well as to the show. You know, uh, you know this, of course. You know, this is a radio show, Sam. Um, and by virtue of being a radio show, at one level, I, I would, in theory, suffer that threat. Um, Mark Lawrence, the uh, station's engineer, um, who, who literally uh, physically built the station and maintains it, um, is the institutional memory, as far as I can tell, of KZSU. Uh, Mark I undoubtedly remembers shows that everyone else affiliated with KZSU has forgotten. Um, but... Right. This show is also a podcast. And so because it is a podcast, in fact, listeners know this, right? I am recording this interview for airing on Friday. Um, how much of what you are concerned about as we drill down on radio, for example, right, has in a sense been solved is probably too strong, but at least addressed by virtue of the overlap in medium. In other words, right, how much can you say with comfort, right, would be preserved that now that would not be preserved if we didn't have, for example, streaming, right, or we didn't have, for example, podcasts, or we didn't have, for example, just the ability, as I am here, right, to sit in, you know, what I euphemistically call the East Coast studios of KZSU, but that's truly joking, right? I'm in a basement room in my house using equipment that I bought to record. Is, is technology in that sense from a radio perspective a partial solution or are we talking about two different things because my radio show is also a podcast and not something else? Well, I can give you a, a, a great big um, ambiguous maybe, yes mm -hmm. and no. Mm -hmm. I think technologically, um, as I've mentioned already too many times, it's much easier to record um, audio and video than it's ever been and we can all do it ourselves and but at the same time sustaining those recordings and keeping them over a long term is very very difficult and it's difficult for historical archives and it's difficult for contemporary ones that's something that our um, the Ars Guide to Preservation tries to address and give people an introduction to um, and I'll go into that. I want to say one more thing about early materials. Um, I mentioned we had a radio conference um, a few days ago, and um, one of the presenters there is the archivist in charge of the Pacifica Radio Network's archives, which are held in Los Angeles. Pacifica has stations in Berkeley, Los Angeles, New York, Washington, D.C., and um, probably one other, two other cities and some fantastic guests over Pacifica's 65-year uh, history at least. And the archives is an enormous, under enormous pressure now because there are no funds to transfer the tapes to a more permanent medium, systematically do it. Um, I also learned from the archivist, um, that Brian DeShazen, who, who was there, that many of the local Pacifica stations, such as one here in Washington, um, has very few recordings of, of its own programming. We had a very beloved disc jockey here who had, 
I won't go into it. His name was Jerry Washington. Brian told me that maybe there are four recordings of Jerry Washington's program. He was on for about 10 years every single week for two or three hours. And, and he had sort of a, he made up a um, sort of a community, an African-American equivalent to Lake Wobegon is how I characterize it. It was very comical and, and People thought it was real, but he was just making it up in a studio. Anyway, most of that is gone, but I do believe it's held by fans who may have home recorded him over the years, and we've got to get those recordings. But to give you another answer, yeah. I'm sorry my answers are so long. No, 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 This is that's the format of the show, so yeah, please. The big challenge is once we have these recordings, how do we sustain them over time? Yes. And this is a, I'm going to make a transition to a, into a technical issue, which is, the, the, the largest challenge facing us is that, you know, in, in my experience or career in the old days, you know, people used to hope and long for the permanent medium. What's the permanent medium? When is something going to be invented where if we record it, it'll be there forever? So, um, you know, 30 years ago, well, only 20 years ago, the preservation medium was quarter inch open reel tape. And, and, you know, I'm sure all your listeners are aware of those, the big reels. And um, those recordings were made at seven and a half inches per second, maybe stereo, maybe double track. But it was always known that that tape wasn't going to last forever. But no one realized 40 years ago that in some cases, the tape which was being used, which made great, um, had great results for fidelity and, 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 and day-to-day radio use and other use, it was a terrible preservation medium. The tape itself has turned out to um, deteriorate faster than the media which the tape was used to preserve. The tape suffers from what they call hydrolysis or sticky shed syndrome. Now, this isn't all open reel tape. It's open reel tape, a lot of open reel tape that was made from the 70s through the 90s. And, and this is when preservation programs started for audio. So a lot of these so-called preservation tapes need to be copied. That's one thing. The other issue is um, the analog domain as opposed to what we're in now, the digital domain. In the analog domain, every time you copied these signals recorded on iron oxide particles, there'd be a deterioration between generations. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have any older listeners, it's akin to carbon paper. If you remember putting two or three pieces of paper in your typewriter and then the bottom one in between you know with carbon paper in between was much fainter than the top one and this is the case with several generations of audio you tape these you make copies of copies of analog recordings and each copy has more noise uh, um, lower signal noise ratio more it's often hiss that you hear in in tape so the analog is already challenged but the digital is challenged as well because there's no permanent digital medium. Now, about 20 years ago, it's been 20 years now, people, theorists in archives said, well, you know, yes, there's no digital medium and there probably never will be. And let's just face that and let's accept that. And let's start building digital repositories the way banks have, the, the way the military has, the way scientists has, big, big data where you just accept the fact that there's no medium and you build systems that systematically copy your bit streams. And it isn't 
an incredible technical development because it's been going on in industry for a long time, but it's a change for archives themselves. And to me, it's sort of liberating. Let's just get off the fact that, you know, looking for the holy grail of, you know, is it going to be slate? Is it going to be diamond? Is it going to be glass? It's probably not going to be anything. We just, what we do is build systems now and we record digital as files and we migrate those files. We check the integrity of them and there's systems to do that to make sure that the file that you copy is exactly the same. It's, it's not enormously difficult, but it involves an infrastructure and that infrastructure is often more than most individuals or institutions can do themselves. We've all lost hard disk data or data off CDRs, recordable CDs. So we know that this stuff is, is at risk. So we have to minimize that risk by um, by putting it into systems that are that are um, monitored and and have uh, and have migration and mirror copies in different places. It sounds complex, but it's really um, it's very common now. But we have to get people used to doing it, and and th and that's hard. And people are coming that way through what we call the cloud. But the cloud really isn't preservation because how do we know if you put everything in one basket in one company's cloud, do you really know that it's going to be available to you? Do you know that company isn't going to go out of business? Do you know that whether that company's checking file integrity? So it's a little more sophisticated than the cloud, but that's the theory of it. We're chatting with Sam Barlowski of the Association for Recorded Sound Collection on KZSU-FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. Um, Sam, you alluded to it, I alluded to it, and I think it's time to talk about the law. Now, of course, I will say up front, you are not a lawyer. I always give that caveat to my guests, particularly since lots of lawyers listen. Um, but quite frankly, I think it's often more interesting to talk to non-lawyers about law than lawyers about law, and this is a perfect example of it. As I mentioned in our introduction, um, you know, I got to know you and your colleagues um, at ARSC uh, by virtue of uh, Larry Lessig's interest in fair use. But let's put that aside for a moment, because um, I want to ask you a question, and this is something we had talked about, um, you know, at, at length uh, over the last ten years. As lawyers, right? We, of course, run things through the prism of what does the law say, and what are the rules, and how do you think it through. But that's because I'm a lawyer, right? From a archivist or collector's standpoint, right? And particularly with regard to copyright law, which, as I mentioned in the introduction, right, is you know can be a major impediment to the efforts of collectors and archivists who are not necessarily the same thing, right? What is the role of copyright law today, right, in the world of, and let's start because that's where we're focusing, and I think it's, I think it's an important and not nearly as, as explored as it should be questioned. What is the role of copyright law today for the archivists and the people who are formally, formally, as opposed to people that are taping at home, formally charged because of their profession and their job to build and maintain these repositories of sound? Well, um, the, Archivists have become very familiar with the law. That's not to say that we, you know, maybe we know enough to be dangerous, but we have to be familiar with it. We have to understand um, what the law says, and we have to understand the limits of the law. And many of us work in institutions where our attorneys, that is the general counsel of the institutions, 
um, of course, understand the law better than we are and, and guide us and guide us in very positive ways. Help us. I have to be blunt. Get around the problems of the law. I'll give you one example specifically and then something that's even more important. Um, the copyright law, the major part of our copyright law today was written in before 1976. It was passed in 1976 and, and went into effect in 1978. And the law is very specific about preservation. And, you know, one thing the law says is, you know, it, it actually gives some examples where we can have three copies of a preserved item. Um, you know, there's basically your master copy, the thing you put in the vault. There's a there's sort of a working master where you make as good of a copy of that. And then you make your derivatives. Well, they didn't call them derivatives then, but your access copies off the access master. So if you think about it, there's one in the vault that you never touched. There's a duplicate of it that's on the shelf that you use to make copies of for um, access. Um, it worked pretty well, and but it's still in effect. And it's if you think about it, it just it's all about the analog world. It doesn't acknowledge the the capabilities of digital whatsoever. And that, that's just a minor thing. But I'm talking specifically to audio. There are two giant problems with the law as our challenges to us. One is one that you alluded to, which is there's no, uh, there was no federal law for sound recordings until 1972, February 15th, 1972. And when they wrote the 1976 law, it, it states something to the effect of nothing in this law shall supersede state protection for sound recordings until 70 years from this law, or rather, um, until 2047, which was 75 years. And then when they extended the copyright law in the late 90s, it became 95 years. And the point is, is that a, a cylinder recording from 1891 of, let's say, Sousa's band is protected by state laws until 2067. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I hope you have a lot of younger listeners that will live to that. I, I won't. And, um, you know, th- th- this is, means everything's locked up. There is no, hardly any public domain in the United States for uh, sound recordings. This is very important because this, this thing I mentioned a few minutes ago about building digital systems, digital repositories, it's very expensive. And in order to pay for it, I think that we need to be, provide the public with access it's going to take public money, whether it's within universities or governments, to pay for these uh, repositories. The companies aren't paying for them. That is to say, the intellectual property holders aren't, So, for the most part. I mean, you know, they are for the Beatles, of course. They are for some, you know, that top 1% of artists. But for the rest, they're not. So um, access just is so essential in order to support preservation and also just to make it to, to make it uh, worthwhile to have this effort so that people can appreciate our, our culture. The other one, which is another little thing, but it's another little paradox of sound recordings, another little exception of sound recordings to the rest of the law. The first exception being this nothing federally protected before 1972. It's almost the only medium in which that applies. Maps, books, motion pictures, music, they're all protected before 1972, but not sound recordings. The other is is that preservation in general is uh, allowed in the law by Section 108 of the copyright law. And um, Dave, please correct me when I'm wrong. I won't even say if I'm wrong. But Section 108 says something like, 
you may replace this recording, that is, you may copy this recording for preservation or anything else if it is damaged beyond use mm -hmm. and you can't find another copy at, at a reasonable price, at a fair market price. Now, what's that saying is, first of all, if you have an LP, you can't really copy it for preservation until it's damaged. Now, if a book is damaged, you know, you can Photoshop it or you can even tape it. You know, a tear in the text doesn't make the text unreadable. But a scratch on the recording can really does mar appreciation and, and actual hearing of the recording. So that, that's a big problem. Mm -hmm. I mean, and the other is through eBay and, and other distribution systems, yeah, we can all replace our LPs. But is that really what, how to preserve recordings? We don't know that they're not going to be scratches in what we buy from eBay. So again, the, the, there's the to me, it's a great paradox that you can't preserve a recording until the recording's already deteriorated. Now, what what the end of that is is that almost all preservation in the United States of sound recordings takes place under fair use. Mm -hmm. That Section 108 is almost useless for preservation. I, I might add that there are also great, great limitations on the distribution of digital copies um, and sharing of your preserved recording. I won't go into that. So, so fair use is absolutely essential to preservation, and th this goes to um, you know any institution doing it that doesn't own the rights to vote. They're preserving, you know, and and Sam, and we have about ten minutes or so, a little bit less left, um, where I start getting into what I call the unfair portion of the show, where I start asking questions that guests uh, who had previously had ample time now have a short amount of time um, to answer. You know, it, it's interesting that you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm characterizing your. Um, response as you know is basically saying that you know what, that the law you know for the most part um, you know, as you said needs to be worked around as opposed to being an incentive to preserve and the reason why I put it that way is that you know as as you know the, the theory primary theory in the United States underlying copyright law is the is the utilitarian justification that copyright law is required right to incentivize the creation of new works right and but when it comes to copying as you point out right copyright law appears to be doing no such thing it's certainly not incentivizing the creation of it and at best it's not getting in the way um, and the reason why I asked the question that way um, is b particularly because of the 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 uh, prism through which we're thinking about this now which is really one of the archivist or the librarian um, and generally speaking librarians are often the individuals that are enforcing copyright law amongst users at at educational institutions and the like right if if i want to copy a page out of a textbook in the library right for purposes of using my class it will be the librarian who will say no right Copyright law says you can't do that, right? No, knows... I have to disagree with you. There. And so, and so, go ahead. So good. So that's why I, mean, I asked the question. So you, you've read the law closer than I have. Yeah. If you ask the library itself to make that copy, the librarian probably will have to say no. Mm -hmm. Although an enlightened librarian will know that one page out of a textbook for a college professor, if that isn't fair use, doesn't meet at least you know three, if not all four criteria of fair mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. They're they're not very good librarians in this day and age. But I'll say one. <laughs> In, in, in defense of the law, 
the law is very good. That, this is this is why I asked the question. So go ahead. Yeah. Not holding librarians responsible for what users do with their materials. So it, most libraries will will say, "Here is your book, Professor Levine." Um, and if the book isn't fragile, isn't from you know, isn't deteriorating in some way, they are required by law to ignore you at the photocopier. The photo, the, the, by law, the photocopiers in libraries have a, a sign on them that say, use of this machine is your responsibility and please don't break the law. It doesn't, you know, it wouldn't, couldn't be a sign big enough if it had the whole law that might apply. But it basically absolves the librarian of responsibility. The law is very good that way. It, it doesn't say the librarian should be complicit, but it, but it says that we, we, we can't be responsible for everything that takes place in a reading room. Mm -hmm. So, in that regard, that's why I, I take issue with it a little bit. You would be allowed to go to the Xerox machine if the librarian's following the law. I've known some that don't and, and get in the way, but I would say they're ignorant of the law and they're not doing their job. Um, but if you ask the librarian to copy it and you say, I want this whole textbook because um, I have some students who can't afford to buy it and I'd just like to make it available to them. No, the librarian is not allowed to do that and, and shouldn't do that. And, and so isn't, and, and this is why I wanted to frame it this way, would you agree or do you think it's a fair characterization to say that, uh, and it sounds like a loaded question in a sense it is, but uh, that federal copyright law has put sound archivists in the same position as the student, right, going to the library, copying a page, right, and being told, look, you know, you're responsible. In other words, right, and you know, and the tie back to Lessig, of course, is that one of one of one of Larry's, I think, core insights um, that has helped us understand more broadly uh, what we're doing with IP law is the notion of criminalizing behaviors for which there's an unclear harm, right? And of course, the obvious. I think there's an obvious difference between copying Lady Gaga's recordings versus copying maybe Sousa's recordings from 1891 might actually have a market, but the vast bulk of what we're talking about has no market for sale. Um, is it? Absolutely. Is, yeah, it, I, I can't agree more. Yeah. Um, you know, we won't go through the, the, the four criteria in the law that, that, that explain what fair use might be, but to mention what I think is the most important one is effect on the marketplace. And you know, copying Lady Gaga is and giving it to your friends, um, the whole album, uh, you know, or giving it to lots of friends, that has an effect on the marketplace. The, the recording industry learned, you know, years ago that it's not in their interest to sue personal infringers or grandmothers, as, as we found as the, but, um, but there still is an acceptance over the fact that there's this incredible amount of recordings that are out of print that you can only access through the gray market. Now, I'm not saying that you can only access them illegally, but it, following the letter of the law exactly, you really can't access to them. And, and that's what drives um, me crazy and my friends and colleagues crazy. We, we did a study for the National Recording Preservation Board that found that of historical recordings made night before 1965, only 14% are in print by the IP holders. Mm -hmm. 
Europe has a more liberal law. Um, until recently, sound recordings were only protected till for 50 years. Now it's 70 years, but it's not retroactive. So almost everything before 1963 or so is public domain. Not the underlying work, the music, but the recording itself. Um, and these record companies aren't any worse off than the ones here. But even though they're not in print here, uh, they're still protected. I, I said this to my radio colleagues the other day. I, I, I equate the mentality of some IP holders to a three-year-old in a sandbox where they, they're, they're ignoring that little dump truck, that little Tonka dump truck behind them until some other little boy picks it up and plays with it, and then they turn around and scream, and, and the, all of a sudden that truck's of interest to them. And this is where I want to kind of you know leave us, Sam. I mean, aside from... Uh, aside from talking very quickly about where people can learn more about your work. So as I mentioned, the, the hearsay culture's audience is, is certainly not exclusively lawyers, but there are many lawyers and uh, perhaps even more importantly, from my perspective, law students that listen to this show, right? As, as a, as an archivist, right? As a, as someone trying to preserve and, and it sounds hyperbolic, but it is absolutely true. The recorded history of our country, which is why I consider this work, that you and your colleagues do to be essential and why, as you know, I am an enormous fan not only of ARSC, but I'm an enormous fan of librarians, um, but particularly here. What do you say to lawyers? What should we be doing as lawyers, right, maybe as activists, um, to deal with the problems that you are describing, right, on the practical, non-theoretical, and very, you know, front line of using or dealing with, or as you said, working around copyright law. What do you tell us? And tell us in about a minute and a half. Well, I, I just I just make them aware of what the law says. This this idea of nothing being public domain till twenty sixty seven, I think, is important. So it, it really gets to education. I'm, I'm I, I think that we don't have advocates here in Washington is copyright law is being rewritten now or was being rewritten last year. I don't know what the priorities should The Judiciary Committee priorities now are just, you know, keeping a replacement from Scalia on the bench, I think. But we won't go there. But I can just say, but last year it was a big deal to rewrite copyright law. And and we work to sort of make legislators aware of the problems of, of, of providing access to early recordings. Um, I, I hope there's some, I, I think there could be some there are tools to license recordings. It's not like I think everything should be in public domain, but it's very hard to license unpublished recordings. We've talked a lot about broadcasting. How do we find those contracts? And so maybe there should be some quit claim mechanisms, some most favored nation mechanisms, some collecting societies for the trade unions that, that are concerned about this. That's another problem. And since I only have a minute, yes. I want to say another solution is yeah. to read our guide to audio preservation <laughs> and you. some of the yeah. other works that yeah. have been done for the National Recording Preservation Board. Three legal studies have been done for the National Recording Preservation Board's study of the state of preservation. And this guide also funded by the board is available. They're all, I, I want to plug them because they're all available for free as a download from clear.org, the Council on Library and Information Resources.org has published them, but PDFs of every single guide and study and the plan, which are which have incredible legal uh, expertise in them. We've had, as I say, three legal studies plus the fair use study within the Arts Guide to Preservation. They're all available as downloads for free. So I didn't want to go away without 
mentioning that. Yeah, so now is going to be my last question. Oh, okay. uh, so perfect. Um, Sam Brylowski, uh co-editor of the Ars Guide to Audio Preservation. As you know, Sam, I make no bones, and the transparency is important to me, of my admiration for you and your colleagues and your work. Um, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you uh, to you and your your editors and your authors for this guide. Um, I, I welcome you, of course, back on the show. I look forward to chatting with you in the future, both on air and off air, but thank you for joining me today to educate my listeners on what I think, again, is an extremely important issue that does not nearly get the attention it deserves, either in Congress or uh, in in general uh, popular discussion of intellectual property uh, law issues. Thank you today. Well, thank you. We're we're very appreciative to, to the legal community, which is interested in this and working so hard. Thanks. So we have one more show, uh, really, that's coming up in this quarter on KZSU's schedule. Um, next week, we will be chatting with Dave King, uh, the drummer for The Bad Plus and also the uh, founder of the Rational Funk video podcast series. As always, you have a number of ways to listen to Hearsay Culture. You can listen live on Stanford Radio, uh, 2 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time Fridays, uh, by either tuning in in the Bay Area or at kzsulive.stanford.edu or you can get the show via podcast by going to the iTunes engine for CIS or by going to cyberlaw.stanford.edu As always, I welcome your comments, suggestions and feedback by going to the contact form at hearsayculture.com or by emailing me at dave at hearsayculture.com Thank you for much for joining me today on Hearsay Culture. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming and have a great day.